there are two umbrella aspects that we look at and consider. One is the founder and the other is the brand. And we need to look and consider both. And there are areas in both that are green lights and there are others that are, are red flags. Welcome to The Business of Drinks, a podcast dedicated to helping beverage alcohol businesses grow and thrive. I'm Felicity Carter. And I'm Erica Ducey. This season, we're focused on drink startups. How does a brand go from idea to launch and then plot a path to success? What hurdles do brands face along the way and how can they overcome those challenges? Stay tuned as we investigate. Welcome to episode six of the Business of Drinks podcast. And today we had a fascinating conversation with Scott Rosenbaum. Erica, you've known him for a while. Do you want to introduce him? Yeah, Scott is one of my favorite people in the drinks industry. I've worked with him in various capacities. Back when I ran 750 Daily, he was a contributing editor for me and he always has worked in the industry. So he previously ran the spirits portfolio for a big New York-based importer and distributor. He has helped raise up a lot of brands. So from La Gratona tequila and Arete tequila to Weigel whiskey. And his depth of knowledge about how this industry works is sort of unparalleled. Mm -hmm. And in recent years, he's worked for Distill Ventures as the search manager. So it is literally his job to do probably what everyone listening to this podcast wants to do, which is to sit at a bar, to get inspired, to hear about the new brands or flavors or trends that are happening, and then to help a company, in this case, the Accelerator Distill Ventures, go out and find these new talented founders and products. Yeah, I was really struck by how enthusiastic he is about it. He really, really loves the job. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there are so many interesting parts of this conversation that I'm excited for people to listen to. You know, I actually didn't realize that there was such a depth of different services that an Accelerator can offer from investment to networking to helping with different types of expertise like sales or marketing. It was much more kind of robust and holistic than I expected. I found it very inspiring, actually, that if you come up with something, you're not on your own. There are people who can help you and people of goodwill. Like he obviously, like I said, he obviously loves this sector and he loves the people he's working with. Yeah. And so it's not a cold corporate decision. It's a decision based on, you know, come on in, let's help you out, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And another thing that I found surprising was just how important the founder is, right? So Mm. it's not really all about the product or, you know, the brand story. A lot of what Distill Ventures is looking for and presumably other accelerators is the founder and how kind of coachable the founder is, potentially how humble they are. Are they someone that you want to work with? Like these weren't things that I necessarily think of the drinks industry as being so focused on. I kind of generally think of it as like, if the product is amazing, it will sell. But I think that's a misconception. Yes. And throughout the whole season, nearly everyone we've spoken to hasn't really talked very much about the taste of the product. It's almost like, you know, the quality has to be a given, but that's only one part of what will make a brand successful, which must be a big shock to people who spend a lot of time thinking about flavor and, you know, how they're putting it together and so on. But that's only a small piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, let's get into the conversation. Let's do it. 
And now, a word from our sponsor, ExcelPay. At the Business of Drinks, we talk about building successful brands, but there's one crucial element that many overlook, the e-commerce experience. It's true. I've landed on so many terrible BevAlk sites with broken links and 20-step checkouts. And don't forget about alcohol sales compliance. Navigating the three-tier system can be daunting, but it's essential to ensure your operations run smoothly and are legally compliant. Enter ExcelPay. From a one-tap, compliant checkout to comprehensive sales data, ExcelPay has you covered and can make your existing site a storefront. Visit excelpay.io forward slash BOD to get an exclusive 10% off your account. That's A-C-C-E-L-P-A-Y dot I-O forward slash B-O-D. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. So we're excited to learn a little bit more about Distill Ventures because it's come up in conversation with multiple of our guests this season as we've been helping small brands try to understand how to both launch and gain some sales success and expand in a way that is sustainable. So we're super excited to talk with you and hear about about your insights. So tell us about Distill Ventures. Yeah, Distill Ventures is unique because it sits at the intersection of what so many drinks companies are looking for, but don't necessarily have. So if I were to describe Distill Ventures in a sentence, we are a drinks accelerator. We're not a distributor. We're not an importer. We don't own any brands ourselves. We are an independent drinks accelerator. So we were the first. We were founded in 2013. This is our 10-year anniversary. And kind of borrowing from the tech world where you see accelerators that lend their expertise, lend you know human capital, financial resources, their network to grow tech companies, we do that with drinks. Mm. We help brands grow smarter, faster, bigger. And what's your relationship to Diageo, the parent company? That's great. So they aren't necessarily a parent company. We are independent. Mm -hmm. They are our partner, but they are our sole investor. So when we work with a brand, Diageo funds that growth. They invest in that brand, but we are the ones who day-to-day are partnering with the brand to share our insights, data, provide insight, and you know, lend ourselves to the founders of that brand. So as an accelerator, what services does Distill Ventures offer to startups? The question is, what does that startup need? Mm-hmm. Founders can't be experts in everything. And we like to think that between the 30 or so of us that are working for Distill Ventures, we have built up a considerable amount of institutional knowledge that is specifically focused on growing brands from the point of wherever they're starting. And that could be an idea. It could be a fully-fledged brand selling 10,000 nine-liter cases a year. But wherever they are, to get them to a point of scale where they make sense within the corporate machinery that is a multinational. And to that end, you have financial capabilities with regard to investment. There's money. There is expertise in everything from trade marketing, all right, so the B2B, how you might sell to a retailer or to a distributor or how that distributor sells to a store. You have commercialization expertise. How might you get into a particular market with a larger distributor? Packaging design, expertise in marketing. We have someone who's, who's full-time 
you know, social media expertise. So if brands have questions about how best to employ something like Instagram, but also SMS messaging, texting to follow up on sales, any, any and all of that, we have data that we can share. A lot of small brands can't purchase data, but because we are a portfolio, we can have access to data that we can then share with some of our brands. So any and all, uh, the list goes on and on. It's what does the founder need? We we don't offer a one-size-fits-all package. I think you urgently need to invest in a drinks podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the brands get a lot from working with you. What do you get from working with them? That is a great question. So our partner, Diageo, there is a goal. It's not a secret. They are looking to acquire brands, you know, had the, the fun time of listening to some prior podcast and, you know, hearing Christy speak, right? Multinationals aren't great at building a brand from scratch. They are great at growing brands, taking them from a certain place, but growing a brand from zero to one or zero to 10, that is what entrepreneurs are fantastic at. What multinationals are great at is taking that and growing it from one to 100 or 10 to 1,000. So Diageo is investing capital to acquire a small minority stake in a brand, but the ultimate goal is over the journey, should goals be met and, and there be success for the brand to be acquired by Diageo. To that end, this isn't necessarily the right path for every entrepreneur. If an entrepreneur is founding a company to you know build a legacy brand over generations, they should absolutely do that and they should find you know great strategic partners, but that might not necessarily be the path a brand wants to take with us. So you mentioned Christy, Christy Frank, whose brand Hamlet Hound we've been following this whole season. And as you know, Hamlet Hound has launched. It has sold through a couple of its production runs. It's in more than 50 retail and restaurant accounts in the New York area. Tell me, is now a good time for a brand like that to approach Distill Ventures? Christy and I have already spoken. We've spoken before the podcast even started <laughs> recording, but sooner is always better. Mm -hmm. But I'm happy to speak to a brand at any stage. Now, there has to be an idea. It has to be able to be articulated. But I don't need a 1,000-page business plan or a 50-page business plan. Uh, <laughs> I don't need a 100-slide deck. I'd prefer to look at a 20-slide deck. But there needs to be an idea. And to that end, we're happy to provide feedback on where we see something either being completely unique or, quote unquote, just another brand. I literally encounter a dozen new brands a day. And every entrepreneur thinks they might be, you know, starting the next big thing. And I hope many of them are. But there is a lot of duplicative efforts in brands. Can you talk us through what you mean by that? That's obviously a really important point. Let's use the category of RTDs as, a, as an example. There are thousands. Typically, I might hear a pitch that says, we are the first RTD to do XYZ, to use this ingredient, to use this base. And that might be true for a certain period of time or for a certain geography. Hamlet Hound, for example, is an interesting RTD in that they use brown spirits as their base, as opposed to, say, a malt spirit base RTD. But I've encountered other quality bourbon colas in RTD form. Now, there aren't many maybe half a dozen. But to simply say you're the first at something doesn't necessarily say you're going to succeed at scaling. Because if you can do it, someone else can. And that someone else might have more money and resources. So in short, what is your edge? And so tell me, 
what is it that you are looking for? You know, as a search manager, I know you're out there finding brands that could be promising. And how is it that you locate and start to work with these diamonds in the rough? Yeah, I liken my role at Distill to that of a talent scout for booze. And oh, I like it. <laughs> A&R. A&R. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of, you know, going to shows to listen to bands, I'm talking to entrepreneurs and I'm tasting various drinks. So how do we find these entrepreneurs? Some of them come to us. We have an application on our website. Like, like everything else, you can find us on Instagram. We have seminars and you can find summits that we have online. Introductions. Networks are so important. Whether you're working with Distill or going at your own or finding another strategic or investor, networks are incredible because that introduction comes with the trust that's inherent in that relationship. So applications, introductions, and then research, both kind of that hard quantitative research. So, you know, a company like Nielsen that people think of for TV ratings, you know, Nielsen does research with regard to the sales of wine, beer, spirits. There's a company called IWSR. Mm -hmm. They do research. So we can, you know, look at this data and say, who's selling some, who's selling more, who's selling faster than they were. You know, that's the science, but we marry that with the qualitative, the art. So I'll look at things like design blogs for packaging. There's a, a website called The Dye Line, which is amazing. I'll go to tastings and here I might try the spirit or the brand, but I'll also do something like I'll watch the crowd, which tables are the busiest. Ooh, mm, I love this. You're you're like the kind of a spy out there getting the intel. Nothing there is proprietary. I'm just watching where people are going. I, I remember reading a wine book, either Hugh Johnson or Jancis Robinson or, or something of the like. And they said, if you want to judge the quality of a wine, put some bottles out at a party and just see which ones are empty at the end of the evening. Yeah, Don't ask people whether they like it or hate it. Just observe the behavior. Yeah, smart. See what they do, not what they say. So considering you're the man with the money, do you find people watching you as well? <laughs> I'm sure there are. You know, we were founded in 2013 and we were the first drinks accelerator. There are now more than a dozen. It is a, a more competitive field than it had been prior. but we are singularly focused on our entrepreneurs and what we can do to help them and not necessarily what some other company is, is trying to do with theirs. To that end, we have a very specific mandate. We're very, very focused on distilled spirits, alcoholic beverages, and non-alc spirits, so something like a seed lip or a ritual. But we're so focused, we don't do wine, we don't do beer, we don't do sake. Unfortunately, we don't do drinks podcast. <laughs> Not yet, but you should consider it. Not yet. But yeah, even something like uh, drinks technology, unless it's inherent to a brand, we're very focused. Now, there are drinks accelerators, strategics that do have a wider swath in which they invest in. They might invest in an app that makes drink recommendations at restaurants or something like that, but we are pretty focused. So even within the small world, you can kind of find the right niche partner. So basically your headshot is in the staff room of every distillery around the country, <laughs> like the restaurant reviewer. <laughs> so obviously this is an art, but can you break down what is a brand that will make you go, yes, and what's an instant, yeah, no, these people don't know what they're doing? Wow. I mean, I want to just start by saying there are two umbrella aspects that we look at and consider. One is the founder and the other is the brand. And we need to look and consider both. And there are areas in both that are green lights and there are others that are, are red flags. So for 
founder. We want someone who is inspiring, who has a vision, but is also coachable. We want them to have that vision, but we recognize that having some humility, looking to get guidance in the areas in which they're not experts. We all talking here have expertise. We've been in this business for a while, but our expertise is slightly different. And that's what adds value. And that's why we're talking. So you might come from a marketing background and you've got that locked down, but you might need help with commercialization and getting your message out to distributors rather than consumers. So that ability to learn. And then there are, you know, the, the typical things you hear about being agile, adaptable, gritty, resilient. That is all true. But some of the basics, I've had amazing visionary founders that I've spoken with who have those aspects, but we also want someone who's respectful, compassionate, right? Don't want to do business with jerks. All those things matter. And I think you'll find that in founders across our portfolio, they're just amazing people, but open and curious. Curiosity is a big thing because you're always learning in this business. You never hit that pinnacle where you know everything. And that kind of leads to the next area, which is the brand. Because you, you never hit that level of expertise because what got you from point A to point B won't get you from B to C. So what do we look for in a brand? We're looking for a brand that has emotional resonance, that has a story. If you're just a brand that was founded because you thought it would be fun, you know, we've all heard stories of people, especially in this industry, uh, you know, we know that you shouldn't open a restaurant because you think it'll be fun. It won't be fun. <laughs> the same thing, I thought it'd be cool to start a whiskey brand isn't the same as doing something a little differently, nor is the idea that I found my grandfather's or grandmother's, you know, moonshine recipe. That story has been repeated so many times as not to be meaningful. <laughs> I'm sure. We look for strategic fit. Does it make sense with regard to the consumer? A lot of people who found brands think about brands in terms of, oh, this is a tequila at this price point. And that's great. But multinationals and accelerators such as ourselves also think about brands in terms of who their consumer is and where the white space might be with that consumer. Maybe you are a tequila at this price point, but you appeal to a completely different consumer than this other brand that's already in the portfolio. So it's okay that there are two. We look for liquid quality or innovation or provenance. Are you making a whiskey from a unique grain or in a way that can't easily be replicated? Packaging. Something that comes up a lot is something called skew rationalization, which prior to me entering into this part of the business, I'd never really thought about. But is there a purpose to why you have all the items that you sell within the brand. So an example here is if you have an RTD and you have watermelon and you have lime and you have strawberry, is there a reason why you have so many flavors? Mm, yeah. Or do you just have flavors because when you have more, you think you can sell more? A brand that is truly going to scale, that's truly going to grow, will grow because of that first or, or main skew, that hero, that hero item. Think Coca-Cola. Yeah, there are many iterations, but that one label, Coke, Coca-Cola, that's the hero. And we're looking for brands that have that, that hero. So I could go on and on and on, but those are some of the things we look for in a brand. What does the application process look like? And then let's say once I've signed on with Distill Ventures, what does that look like? Great. The application process is such that you can go to our website, distillventures.com, find our application and apply. And it's the type of thing that you could probably fill out the application in 
30 minutes if you wanted to, but you could also spend two weeks filling it out, probably somewhere in between those two time periods is the, the right amount of time filling it out. The questions indicate those things in which we're, we're looking for. If we ask you about the consumer, don't tell us about the flavor. If we ask you about the price, don't leave that blank. Those are some of the basics because we need that information to make an informed decision. But once we have applications, once I reach out to brands, we have a discussion. This is a lengthy process. This is a lengthy journey. We are called an accelerator, but these journeys for founders take time. I'll give you an example. Mr. Black, very successful coffee liqueur that was in our portfolio for a number of years. They were founded in the early 2010s, roughly. They were in our portfolio for seven years before they sold. And you can look up when they were founded. And, you know, that gives you an idea in terms of how long a process it is. So I have people come and reach out and say, oh, we'd love to work with you. Can we do that in a month or two? And that's how long it takes to have the first two conversations. Typically, it's, it's a few months of conversations and preparation because we help founders hone the way they speak about their brands so that they can pitch to, to our partner, Diageo. And so how competitive is it? What percentage of applications would you say make the final cut and are accepted? A very small percentage. Like in the single digits? Single digits is fair. And okay. that's not even necessarily because of the caliber or quality. It's just because there are so many brands out there. However many brands someone thinks are in a particular category, a vodka at this price or a whiskey from this place, just multiply it by a factor of two or five or 10. And that's how many are actually out there because there's what you see and there's what's about to be founded and there's what has been founded, but you haven't seen yet. There are just thousands of every imaginable brand and understanding, you know, how many brands are in that universe is part of what we do, but gives you some idea. Mm -hmm. Let's just say I've got a RTD whiskey and I've put the application in and you've said, yes, tell me what, what happens? What do you look at? What's the strategy? Yeah. Well, I am part of an amazing team and I am a generalist. My background is originally in, in retail and then importing and distribution. But we have these specialists in all these subject matter, these fields, trade marketing, commercialization, finance, investing, the founders will sit and talk with all of these parties to make sure it makes sense from a financial point of view. This isn't one directional. We have a lot to offer and so do the brands, but we need to make sure that they understand what we can offer, what we can offer. We want to understand what they can offer and what they can't offer. What are their capabilities? Sometimes brands come to us and they have one founder and we want to understand when they get investment, who are they going to hire? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the individual, but the role. Sometimes they are a team and we want to understand what everyone's role is and how they work together. So they meet with these individuals and if everyone on the team gives a thumbs up, we then work with the founders to hone their pitch to Diageo. So these founders will pitch in person to an investment board that, you know, think Shark Tank a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's no Mark Cuban. <laughs> it's not as dramatic. We want these founders to succeed. But, you know, they'll get up in front of a number of executives and share their ideas, share their vision. And if things go well there and there's a green light, then we begin our partnership. And that's when the real work begins. Wow. And what does a typical investment look like? If I get accepted and I get to work with Distill Ventures, you know, how much investment are we talking about? It really varies. There is no one size fits all. 
whatsoever. And here, you know, think to an RTD brand that sells for $4 a can to a whiskey brand that sells for $150 a bottle. One has a co-packer that the brand doesn't own, the RTD brand, right? And the other has a distillery that they need to have built that will require tens of millions of dollars over five, six, seven years. So the true, though perhaps not specific answer is it really varies depending on the the type of brand it's bespoke. It's possible that you might get investment for a distillery as opposed to going and working with one of Diageo's distilleries. Absolutely. In fact, brands that we work with need to stand on their own two legs, so to speak. So that doesn't mean they need to have a distillery. But if the idea is, oh, we want to work with distill so that we can use XYZ distillery, that doesn't necessarily work. Diageo has a co-packing facility in Illinois that can pack cans very, very quickly. And a lot of RTD founders ask, if we work with you, can we use that? And the answer is Diageo is, is using that and they want to see you succeed on your own. So we work with brands that have distilleries. We work with brands that don't have distilleries, but the brand has to show that it can work on its own because if it is successful and Diageo acquires it, it's going to need to have achieved scale at its own level to begin with. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that Mr. Black, for example, was in the portfolio for seven years. Is there a sort of standard length of time that a brand would be in the accelerator? It varies again. And that's because, right, you can make an RTD today and sell it tomorrow. If you both were starting the business of drinks uh, whiskey today, Good idea. you might need to break ground on the distillery. That might take a year to make. It might take, depending on where you are, three years before the whiskey ever hits the market. So that's four years right there. And then you've got to grow it. So we've had journeys that were three years. We've had journeys that are seven, eight, nine years. We're just getting started because some of the investments and partnerships that were formed five years ago are just starting to bear the fruit. It takes that type of time. There are no shortcuts in that way. So one of the things we've been talking to people about is how difficult it is to get sales help and also how you build the brand through things like social media and so on. What advice would you give a brand listening to this podcast about how to deal with those two issues? Sure. So the first thing I'd say, and this is a common thing that I encounter with entrepreneurs, and it's something that we look for is focus. So with regard to, say, sales, are you in eight states or are you in one state? It's very difficult to grow a brand with limited resources, which almost all of these brands are, when you're trying to fly to California and then Ohio and then New York to chase the sales. If you can proverbially own your backyard, I'll see brands say, we want to start in New York and then in six months we want to be in California. You could spend three or four years just building California alone. And I've seen brands do it. And those brands have permanence and penetration in that market because they just keep going back to the same accounts. I'll never forget a lesson I learned in distribution from a supplier, from a whiskey distillery. They were coming to work the market. And I said, great, we've lined up a great schedule. This was the second time they were coming to visit. We have all these new accounts that want to see you. And they said, we don't want to see new accounts. We want to revisit all the ones we saw last time because that's how we build the relationship. And it's counterintuitive. It's very opportunistic and rightfully so for an entrepreneur to say, whoa, someone called from Idaho and they want to pick up a pallet of our our brand. But 
that pallet, those 50 cases, those 100 cases, right? Now you've got to go spend time in Idaho. You know, all due respect to Idaho, but now you've got to spend time there. You've got to work with their team. And that takes away from the time that you were spent growing your brand where you were. And you're spreading yourself thin. So focus is key, whether it be via social media, whether it be over a physical geography. And it's very, very difficult to do. And I've seen brands go the other way and say, we're in two states. Someone called from the UK. They want us to export. And you know how complicated the United States is. Imagine now trying to figure out another country. Yeah, definitely. Well, talk us through the range of exits. So not every brand gets acquired by Diageo, but I'm sure that there are circumstances where the acquisition doesn't happen, but it's still considered a success in some way. So what do those types of situations look like? Yeah. So here I will throw out the caveat that I am newer and not necessarily part of that team. I've been at the still for about a year and a half, so I haven't seen every journey. But there are multiple forms of success. Not every success has to be an exit. A success can be growing the brand to a point where you know, maybe the founders want to take things in a different direction than originally planned. So then it's a matter of finding another partner and securing further investment. Maybe they're at a point where they recognize that scaling to where they originally planned isn't feasible and they want to have a vacation once every, every 10 years. So again, everything is bespoke, both with regard to how we work with brands, but also in terms of how they can continue to work with us and exit or maybe part ways. So are there different strategies if you want to grow your heritage brand for your kids to inherit and have a family company versus building a brand that you can sell to somebody? Do you need different strategies or are they the same? The principles are somewhat the same, but the foundation is different. Imagine you want to build a a one-story house And you also want to build a skyscraper. You need an architect, you need engineers, but the foundation is going to be fundamentally different. One way to think about it is you can have a business that you are bootstrapping and growing at an incremental pace that will support you, maybe your family, a few employees, and you can grow, you know, 5, 10, 15%, 20% every year. And you can bootstrap that with substantially lower margins. But for something to be an investable proposition, from an individual or from a corporation, they need margins that are a lot healthier. So the concept of a margin, pretty straightforward, right? How much money are you making? But the amount of margins might differ because if someone's going to give you money, they're going to want a return on that investment. One example I'll share that comes up sometimes is sometimes founders will say, I work so hard, I don't pay myself. And That is interesting. I don't know if it's necessarily a way to build a scalable business because if someone's going to invest and ultimately try to acquire you, you're not going to work for them for free when they acquire you and they're going to have to pay someone. So what you're doing now isn't representative of how the business will need to run in the future. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. You know, and I'm curious to know, you know, you've worked with so many drink startups at this point. Are there some sort of key attributes or characteristics you see of the ones that are the most successful? Oh, wow. I wish I could say there were just a set of characteristics, but the landscape is always changing. And that's what makes it difficult. What qualified as a successful and meaningful investment five years ago 
might not be invested again in today because the landscape has changed or because that brand has become a leader or because that brand has proven that model doesn't work. Some of the characteristics about founders that I shared earlier are persistent, but we are always trying to differentiate between what is a trend and what is a what is a fad. And I mean, if I could do that, I'd be, you know, king of the world. <laughs> but it's difficult to parse out, but it's something we're keenly aware of. You know, it's interesting because like, for example, you used Mr. Black as an example, which I think is a, a great one because there's Kahlua. I'm like so curious to know. It's almost like Mr. Black helped you know, rebuild the espresso martini craze or something because there was such a huge buzz around espresso martinis in the early 2000s. Then it completely went away. And suddenly I see now, you know, Mr. Black on every single bar. So give me a sense of, did the brand have a role in the resurgence of the espresso martini or how did you see that play out? Undoubtedly. And I only saw the tail end, but, you know, almost as an outside observer for much of it, what you see is the confluence of a number of factors that are important. So Mr. Black undoubtedly played a role in the resurgence of the espresso martini, but you see trends like you have a coffee, you have a liqueur category that includes coffee liqueurs like Kahlua, which Tia Maria, that have been around for a while, that are pretty staid brands that are big and profitable, but that area to use that cliche tech word hasn't been disrupted in quite some time. And You see, though, a number of things. Australian coffee culture. You see consumer coffee culture in something like Starbucks versus people are willing to spend six, seven dollars for a coffee versus the two or three dollars they pay at Dunkin' Donuts. You marry those and you say, wow, there actually isn't a super premium coffee liqueur. There isn't something that marries this uptick in coffee culture in consumers that want a higher cocktail experience. They still have the same old brands in taking, you know, the ability to roast their own beans, use cold brew as a, as a base and make something decidedly different. They are not reinventing the wheel, but taking parts of the wheel to make a slightly better wheel, readjusting them, so to speak. Again, you can't necessarily reapply that model. You can't say, well, now there's not a $100 coffee liqueur today because maybe there isn't a need for it. But seven, eight years ago, there was the foresight to, to think like that. And now we try to look toward other areas. Non-alk would be a good example, first with Seedlip, and now we have a brand in our portfolio like Ritual, which is performing very well. Is there a difference in the way you should approach a brand if you want it to end up on the on-trade or in retail? Wow, that is a great question. There are a lot of philosophies with how brands are built or are, are built to scale. I'd say at the two ends of the spectrum, you have on and you have off. And historically, bigger companies played by the rule book that on-premise is where you build brands. Put it in the hands of bartenders that know, and that gets it in front of consumers. Because when something sits on a retail shelf at a big box store or a large liquor retailer, there's no control over the narrative. It's harder to get it into the hands of consumers. It can be lost on the shelf. As someone who spent the better part of a decade growing small spirit brands for an importer and distributor based in New York. We took the opposite approach. It was hard to play in that territory. Now, New York's a unique state in that every store is independent, but we built it with retailers that like to tell stories. Back in the day, one of those stories was was Frankly Wines, Christy Frank's store, because a retailer like that cares about the provenance and story of a brand. 
but you might not get that same experience in a Costco or, you know, a larger, larger store. But now I'll just say that what we see is there can't be strictly one approach. The, the buzzword is omni-channel. How do we grow it on-premise, off-premise, and direct to consumer when possible? So, you know, thinking about all three of those and not just one. There might be a strategy that underpines, but you've got to win at all three. And tell me a little bit about the bright spots. So what are some of the category trends that you're seeing? Absolutely. I've mentioned non-alcoholic spirits and, and cocktails. That is one that didn't exist 10 years ago. And now it is growing and it is growing in, in leaps and bounds. Again, you, you didn't even see specialty retailers that exist today. World whiskey, which we think about as whiskey is coming from non-traditional region. So, you know, we're not talking bourbon. We're not talking scotch. This could include a brand like in our portfolio, like Stauning Whiskey out of Denmark or Starward out of Australia that uses uh, wine barrels to finish their whiskey. We see those two areas as ripe for growth, ripe for innovation. And those are our more long-term trends than short-term fads. Yeah, definitely. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now we've come to the part of the episode called Last Call. So, Erica, what have you been drinking this week? This week, I had a really fascinating conversation. Parasol. Do you know that Provencal rosé brand? Yes. Yeah. So, Parasol is one of the sort of big four or five rosé brands. And the managing director was in town this week for the release of that vintage. And the brand recently got organic certification. And I was interested in talking with him about why they pursued that certification and how they're essentially competing in this space with a lot of very well-funded rosé brands. And what I didn't expect to hear was that essentially the reason, one of the key reasons that the brand went after organic certification was to lean into a point of differentiation in the marketplace. So when you think about the landscape of rosés, you know, we have Whispering Angel and Minuti, and those are owned part or in whole by Moet Hennessy. And then you have Miraval, which of course, you know, owned by Brad Pitt. So how do you compete with that? <laughs> in a way that conveys a unique brand position. And Parasol really has leaned into organic. You know, this is the first year that it's certified for its estate wines, and it's also pursued certification for its Negos wines under other labels. So it was very fascinating to me to learn that even in this kind of big commodified rosé you know, space, that brands are going after organics as a way to differentiate themselves very strategically. You know, in the past, I think a lot of people felt that marketing yourself as organic was sort of a detractor, like maybe the quality wasn't there. But now I think that the strength of organics, especially for a younger demographic, is just getting more and more important. And so I tried the new Parasol releases and they were, you know, delicious. <laughs> I just love those wines. 
<laughs> so that's my pick of the week. I was excited to hear that I think we've turned the corner on organic certifications, at least in the rosé space, where now it's really seen as a strength. Yeah, it's interesting. I was in the Rhone Valley a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was listening to a press conference and they were saying that 50% of the vineyards in the Rhone Valley now are converting to some form of sustainability, something that you have to get a certification for. Now, the HVE, the High Valor Environmental Certification, is still quite controversial about whether it is as sustainable as it should be or not. But the fact that people are making this effort is pretty soon it's going to be that you won't be able to get a market if you don't have these certifications. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So what were you drinking this week? Well, I pulled out a bottle of something called the Good Hermansburg Seven Terroirs. Uh, Good Hermansburg is an interesting winery in the Nahr Valley in Germany. And about 120 years ago, it used to be a Prussian royal winery. Oh, wow. And then like so many German wineries, it sort of fell into bad times. And then somebody has a Swiss family, I think it's Swiss, has bought it and, and revitalized it. But I went to a tasting there last year and what they, they were trying to do was to show how long-lived Riesling could be. So they put it up against investment grade Burgundies. And it was interesting how sort of bright and fresh the wines were. They're very, very posh, very well-made wines. But what they've done is they've produced this one called Seven Terroirs, which is taken from seven vineyards. And it's like $12 a bottle. And it's absolutely amazing. It's down to my last bottle of it. But at one point, I just bought like loads of cases of it because it was just such a fantastic value for the money. Yeah, I, I feel like there's just so many good values in German Rieslings and like German wines in general. I mean, Spoppergunders, I love. Yeah, they're beautiful. You know, they're really underrated. Like, I think that, you know, getting them in front of more American consumers is definitely an opportunity. Like, I love these wines and I just feel like they need to be recognized more. So... <laughs> I've been having a conversation with people about why is it that you can't sell Riesling to people? Because, you know, sommeliers and people who love wines will rave about Rieslings, but it's never been able to get sort of the normal customer to buy it. And somebody, one of my friends here who's CEO of a winery in the Mosul said to me, it's because Riesling is one of the very few genuinely terroir wines in the world. I think Syrah is the other one, where it shows where it's made and the winemaking can't cover it. And so as a result, Wherever you get Riesling from, it's going to be different from the Riesling up the road. And so there's no way of making a sort of generic commercial wine to introduce people to it. You, you've either got to get straight into it. And then once you find one that you like, you can order a different one from a different region and it's going to taste completely differently. So it's, it's really hard to grab onto unless you're a wine geek, which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. I mean, you know, you see the Riesling coming from Clare Valley and they have like the interesting limey notes or, you know, Rieslings coming from the Pacific Northwest and they have distinctive characteristics. It really... It's maybe a little hard for people to understand it when there are just so many regional variations. Yeah, that's right. Whereas with rosé, you know, what's difficult is how many people have made it into the one style. And uh, you know, now it's beginning to sort of differentiate. But was yours a wine that was unique? If you had tasted it again, would you pick it up as being that wine? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it tastes like a very classic Provençal rosé. But if you lined it up next to Miraval or any of the others, I think it would be very hard to differentiate which one was which. I mean, I think what's cool about rosé is that I love how much stylistic variation there is from place to place. Like some of those kind of brighter rosés that come from Sicily, you know, like that have some more savory characteristics to it. Like those wines I love. So I think there's, you know, with Provençal rosé, I think what the producers there have done really well is to create something that is reliably delicious and refreshing. <laughs> and, and that seems to be, you know, kind of an easy sell for consumers everywhere. 
Yeah, one of the things I really love about a lot of rosés is the packaging. A, a lot of rosé producers have realised that, you know, wine often involves theatre and uh, the packaging of some rosé bottles is absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they just keep on, you know, playing with the bottle sizes and the look and feel. And it's like it's essentially become this, you know, kind of like commoditized luxury good where mm -hmm. you've maybe moved away a little bit from what's in the actual bottle and to the window dressing and the pomp and circumstance and like crafting these fun stories. And so I think rosé is definitely a matured category at this point. Well, I must try it. Cheers. Cheers. And with that, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on The Business of Drinks. And if you liked what you heard, help us spread the word. Follow and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. And if there's some aspect of the business that we have not covered, but you want to know more about, let us know. Felicity, how can people reach out? They should email us at podcast at businessofdrinks.com. We'll see you soon.